morning, everyone. Thanks for braving um, this wonderful weather to be here with us this morning. I hope that you had a great long weekend, and that in amongst all the celebrating, all the family, friends, feasting that maybe some of you were doing, I hope that you also got some time to reflect on Jesus, because as um, I brought that little tidbit to you last week, um, Holidays are actually holy days, and uh, they are a great time for us to reflect on our Savior and all that He's done. And I'm going to be taking uh, what we spoke about last week, and we're launching into a new series. As you can see, it's Exodus. And we spoke about how Jesus is the Passover last week. Um, unfortunately, the podcast was corrupted. We might still be able to get it today, and you can listen to it if you missed it last week. Um, but Jesus as our Passover lamb, Jesus symbolizing um, the Passover. It symbolizes how uh, Jesus is the one that takes us out of slavery and into freedom, right? That's really exciting. And, um, you know, I, I love this story as because the more I started to dive into uh, the Word of God and understanding how Scripture was put together, I started to learn that the Old Testament wasn't just a whole bunch of stories. They were actually... A lot of them, in a way, they, you could call them maybe like a parable, that they are teaching us something about God's heart, and it also teaches us something about our heart. It teaches us how we can uh, respond to God, and I love that God chooses to use stories to teach us about Himself. It is not just God is gracious, full stop. God is love, full stop. God is glorious, full stop. Uh, we go into these stories, and, and through uh, the Exodus story, which is one of the key stories in the Old Testament, we find out that God is truly magnificent, truly amazing. And uh, what we want to do in this series is to take it from that point uh, of exiting Egypt and what happens to the Israelites, because I think there are some really cool uh, stories in this account that teaches so much about God and ourselves. And so, are you ready for this? We're going to jump straight into Exodus chapter 15. And Exodus 15, let me give you the background. They had just passed through the Red Sea. The Red Sea uh, had parted, and the Israelites had walked through on dry land. This is pretty famous. A couple of Hollywood movies have been made of it because it's such a fantastic story, the Exodus. So if you haven't uh, read this, maybe you could go find one of those movies um, and, and catch up, or actually read it because I think reading is actually probably better because Hollywood takes his own slant on things. Uh, but anyway, uh, the Israelites had just crossed the Red Sea. Um, they crossed on dry land. They are now uh, are over uh, the threshold of Egypt. And as the Egyptian army comes through and tries to uh, capture the Israelites, bring them back into slavery, what happens? Anyone knows? Seriously? No one? Any Christians in the house? Anyone who's ever read the Bible or watched a Hollywood movie? The waters crashed over the Egyptians, right? And so the symbolism of that is not so much that God destroys people, but the symbolism is that the, the, the armies, the pursuing armies that were trying to bring Israel back into slavery were completely uh, annihilated. That means that Israel is truly free, right? 
Pretty cool. And so at Exodus 15, we read about Moses and Miriam. Miriam is actually Moses' sister. And they compose a couple of songs. And they sing these songs as um, worshiping God, but also for them to remember what God has actually done to bring them into freedom. And so they sing these songs. They teach it to the people. The people are like, God is great. God is good. Woo! And they're celebrating. And then we hit Exodus 15, verse 22. This is literally after they stop singing according to uh, the the storyline so far. And this is what it says. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink his water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. Mara meaning bitter. So the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water and the water became fit to drink. There the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. He said, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians for I am the Lord who heals you. And so we literally have three days after learning and singing these songs of praise, and the Israelites go from, God is so great, to, we're going to die, right? Can you see how, like, you know, if I, if I was writing this story, I would go, like, as, as a couple of Hollywood movies does, they exit Egypt, and it's like this triumphal procession all the way to Mount Sinai, right? Because that's what the movies do. They, they gloss over these stories. They, they cross over the Red Sea, and they are the people of God. They are strong, and they are victorious for three days. Three days later, they are already doubting whether God is truly with them or not. And let's go on, because it doesn't stop there. That's Exodus chapter 15. That, that, That was the end of chapter 15. Chapter 16, this is what happens. The Israelites grumble again. And this time round, it's it's, uh, the worries about food. Uh, They're worried that they're not going to have enough food. And Exodus 16 verse 3, it says this, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve the entire assembly to death. You know what? When I was reading the story, I completely forgot that, that when they were in Egypt, there was a buffet uh, with, with meat pots that was available to them all the time. And so, of course, walking in the desert would be really kind of crap, isn't it? Except they were slaves, people. When they were saying, oh, if only we had died in Egypt because we had buffet meats. This is not like old school Pizza Hut, eat all that you can. They were slaves. But yet when they came to this place in the story, literally, they sang the songs of praise. Three days later, they grumbled that they didn't have water. And then the very next chapter, I don't know how long it was, but literally they're saying, why are we here? Why are we here? There isn't enough food. And if only we were back there because there is where we have more food. All right, so that's chapter 16. Right, let's go on to chapter 17 because it doesn't stop there because chapter 17 includes this next complaint that Israelites have. And this time round, they complain again that there isn't any water for them. 
And so God now provides water from a rock. He gets Moses to hit the rock. The rock gushes out water, and the water feeds, feeds, drinks, waters the community. And, well, they have water, all right? So they're all good and well. And, and, and let me just quickly point out a couple of things right here. At the, the, the waters of Mara, uh, they put a, 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 a piece of wood in there to heal the waters. Some theologians say that that is supposed to be a picture of Jesus hanging on the cross, you know, the wood going in and healing the waters. And now it says that the rock that was beaten for water to come out uh, to bring water to the people, again, is a symbol of Jesus say couple of nice little trivia points for you. Um, but I want to point out something. In Exodus 17, verse 7, uh, this is what it says. And he, he being Moses, called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarrel and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? Maybe you haven't asked that exact question, but maybe you've asked these other questions. Is God real? Does God really care for me? Can I trust that God will be there for me when I need Him? These are the basic questions that that they were asking of God as they traveled from Egypt. Remember, they saw God performing these amazing signs, wonders, bringing them out of Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea, which had, by the way, miraculously piled up into sides so that they could cross over on dry land, and then it crushes their enemy. And now they're traveling through the desert, and they're, they're faced without water, without food, and then again, without water for a number of days. And they start to question, is God among us or not? as though God had somehow inflicted um, all those plagues and, and, and released them from slavery just because He decided, oh, I had my fun, so see you later. It, it is a weird question to ask. It is, it, it is, to my mind, when I'm reading this story, it doesn't make sense that the Israelites struggled that much as they crossed over into this new life that God had for them. Uh, and, and I used to think that the Israelites were so ungrateful. Well, you, you people are so ungrateful. You, you're so terrible that literally a number of weeks ago, maybe even just days ago, God had done all of these amazing things and now you question His heart. You question whether He's truly going to be there or not. But then I started to think about myself and I started to think about the many people that I've met in my life and this amazing pattern started to come out that so many of us actually start off really praising God for what He has done. We get this revelation of how much God loves us. We think about the cross. We think about the great sacrifice that Jesus went through in order to purchase our freedom. And we go, yes, God, I love you, God. But then things start to happen in our life, doesn't it? If you have never asked those questions of where are you, God? Are you real, God? Do you really care for me, God? If you haven't asked those questions before, I think you're lying. I actually think that you are lying if you've never had a situation where you didn't think those questions through before. So maybe we're not that different from the Israelites. Maybe, maybe, maybe this sense that, oh, they're so ungrateful. Maybe, maybe I'm ungrateful. Maybe there's an issue here. 
But as I started to look through those three stories, I started to see a pattern that Israel wasn't actually so much complaining against God. They actually complained against Moses, who was leading them out of Israel. And then Moses would then bring their complaint to God, right? So that's one point to make there. And I realized that God never displayed any anger to them in these three episodes. I read to you one of those. He simply said, I'll provide for you, and let's see what's going on here. Let's see what's truly on your heart. And I started to look at that, and I wondered if maybe there's a different understanding here that I never really realized um, as a younger Christian. And I started to kind of put this together with a situation at home that has become more and more real over the last couple of months. And um, the situation, if you ever become a parent, um, watch out because this is a lot of fun. It's called separation anxiety. Have you heard of that term before? If you haven't heard of that term before, um, all power to you. Um, so you see, a couple of months ago, Sam, apparently, he, he, he hasn't told us this, he, he, can't, he can't tell us this, but apparently he entered into this new phase where he started to see the separateness between himself and Beck and myself. And so he started to somehow realize that he really likes being with us, and, and then he started to realize that when he can't see us, he doesn't like it, and he gets anxious, and so he cries. And separation anxiety works out this way, um, and uh, many parents will go, this is so familiar, this is exactly what it's like. But um, in, the, in the morning in particular, I'm looking after Sam, and, um, and, and, and Beg's getting ready for the day, and so I, I've got some Sam time. And while looking after him, I decide I want to have some water. I maybe even need to have some water, and so I will say to Sam, Sam, Dad's just going to go get some water, and I will be right back. I make sure I look at him. I make sure he stops playing for a second. I say, I'll be right back, Sam, just getting a cup of water. I walk out of the playroom, and as I walk to where my water bottle is, because for some reason I haven't thought of bringing the bottle into the room, which probably could have, but I didn't, all right? So that's what happened. And so as I walk to where the bottle is, I hear this, this little pitter-patter of his quick crawl. You know, if you have a kid, you, you understand the difference between a slow crawl and then the quick crawl. Like, he's really anxious. And, so, and then I hear, Aah! which you probably have heard a couple of times this morning already, uh, because he's still working through uh, some of his anxieties for some reason this morning. And, and, and I look at him, I, I get my bottle, I said, Sam, I am coming back. You can go back to the room. Dad's coming to you. And he's like, no, no, leave me. And, and you know, it's like, oh, all right, so I pick him up, bring him back to the room. And then the other, another situation that is very common for all human beings, I need to go to the loo. And so Sam's in the room, he's playing, he's having a good time. And I say, Sam, I'll be right back, I just need to go use the loo. I leave the room and I hear this pitter-patter and then I, I hear this cry and I see my son turning around like I have betrayed him. Like I have stuck knives in his back and told him that, Sam, I am going to abandon you and leave you for the rest of your life. That's his reaction. And I'm like, you know, son, you've been in my house for over a year now. 
Surely I have proven myself to you. Surely I have shown you that I am not going to abandon you. I give you food, I give you water, I give you clothes, I give you a cot, I give you bedtime, I give you all of these things so that you can live. But why do you not trust me? And honestly, when the separation anxiety first hit, it actually really frustrated me because it felt like, like it was... How do I say this? It, it was like it was something against my character. Like as though that as a parent, I was insufficient. That's truly how it felt like. And then the other part of it is that I felt as though I would never get a moment's peace for the rest of my life. So those two combined together is, Sam, what is wrong with you? and your little tiny head. Why do you not trust that? And then it was like, I think it's God. I think it really is. Because in and of myself, I was getting frustrated. I didn't know what to do. I, I, I just was like, oh, I know I need to do this, but it's so difficult. And I was complaining to God, as I do. And suddenly I had this thing. It was like, no, Sam hasn't learned how to develop trust yet. And I was like, are you serious? After a year, right? God, I spent a year looking after this boy. He doesn't trust me yet. And I found God kind of reminding me that a child's development is a child's development. He comes from a place where he's learning this stuff. Like, he, he needs to learn how he's separate to his parents. He needs to learn how the world works. And he's... I felt God teaching me that separation anxiety is Sam's way of learning how to develop trust. Without this separation and anxiety and calling out and responding, Sam actually doesn't learn how to trust. And I was like, that puts a different slant on things. Because my heart is that I want my son to be able to trust me and so I started to see this differently. And when he cries out, he's like, yep, yeah, okay, no worries. The separation still needs to happen because he's going to need to learn to trust me whether he sees me or not. But when he cries, I respond. And so when I was looking at this story, I started to realize three days of walking through the desert without water is actually a bit of a stretch. If I were to walk through three days in the WA desert, I would probably be dead by then. So I'm thinking that these guys maybe had some pouches of water for the first couple of days, and God waited till they were running low on water, and for them to go, we need water. Where's water going to come from? What, what, what's going on? Why, why don't we have water? You said that you were bringing us to the promised land, but where is the water? And then God goes, here is the water. And then they travel a few more days and they're running out of food. Like, where's the food? Where's the food? We used to have meat pots in a buffet style in Egypt. Where am I going to get those meat pots again? And God says, I'm going to rain down birds for you to eat. And I'm going to give you bread that appears on the floor. You don't even need to do anything about it. I'm going to do this for you. I found that there was this call and response that was taking place. And it started to dawn on me, maybe God was showing them through the stretch that he can be trusted. And I'm starting to think that even though God has purchased my life and He's taking me into a new life, there are times that I'm still trying to work out whether God can be trusted or not. 
Me asking those questions, is God real? Does he really care? Is he going to be there for me when I need him to be? Those moments are trust-building exercises. Those moments are necessary because if I don't have those moments, I will never really learn how to trust God. If God gave me what I needed before I needed it, I would think that every time I snap my fingers, God is going to make things happen for me. I stop thinking that God is truly God, and I start to think that maybe I'm God because God responds to me, right? How quickly do we as human beings twist these things to work for us and make sense to our needs and our wants? And so I genuinely have started to see this whole, these three stories as though it is God's trust-building exercise with the Israelites. I will provide for you in my time. Just like when Sam wants a snack, and he really wants that snack, and it's half an hour to lunch, I withhold from him because I want him to have a proper lunch. So maybe God withholds snacks from you because he's trying to give you a meal. <laughs> maybe God steps out of the room according to our awareness so that we will know that he never really leaves us or forsakes us. Maybe that's what goes on. Maybe in our Christian walk is not just going to be God's freed me from slavery to sin and so now uh, I have God sitting on my shoulder doing whatever I want Him to do whenever I want Him to do stuff. Maybe it's still a sense of like, well, what's God doing? Where is God? How am I following Him? And so that's kind of the understanding that I'm bringing now, but something really interesting happens. The Israelites actually make it to Mount Sinai, and Mount Sinai is significant because that's where God gives the Ten Commandments to the Israelites. For us Western readers, as we look at the Ten Commandments, we think it's a bunch of rules and regulations. But for the Israelite people, this was something far more significant than a bunch of rules. If you will, it was actually more like a marriage vow between God and His people. He says to them, if you will obey these laws, if you will obey these parameters, I will be your God and you will be my people. It is a beautiful thing. And God already showing along this journey, I will rescue you from slavery and I will provide for you in the wilderness was meant to be proof. It was kind of like a courtship. God was courting the Israelites, if you will. He was showing them that He is trustworthy and He has got their best in mind. And so they get to Mount Sinai and then He says, all right, let's put the terms and conditions out. Let's get married. If you do this, if this is the kind of life that I want to bring you into. And if you look at most of the laws, the laws are actually extremely, especially for those times, extremely humane. They actually gave people greater rights than any other society would. It was an amazing set of instructions to have, uh, to set up the family of God, if you will. It was this beautiful thing. And so the Israelites, when God said, I want to be your God and I want you to be my people they said yes please you see that they go to sinai and they and, and and god says to them this is what we are going to establish here and they said we will do as you say we want this however as god as god as moses is up on the mountain uh, with god what happens they build a golden calf if you remember that story the, the israelites so quickly they said yes god it's like they literally were the, uh, the do you take this god to be your god yes do you take these people to be your people yes 
and then they immediately go, oh, oh, by the way, I'm just going to fashion this idol over here. That's literally what they were doing. It was kind of crazy. And then on top of that, right, in, uh, in Numbers chapters uh, 10 to 21, this is literally after they leave Sinai. So they finish off in Sinai, they head off, and then from there, in Numbers 10 to 21, it records seven rebellion stories back to back. Seven. Seven times after they established a marriage covenant with God, including the little moment where they had an idol created out of gold, God still goes on to say, I will be your God, so come back to me. The people go on a seven-episode rampage of rebellion. You know, the previous time when they were complaining, I thought it was kind of bad, but then I can kind of make out that, yeah, you know, God's trying to teach them that they can trust Him, etc. But then this was after Sinai. This was after the marriage covenant was set. And they went on a seven-episode rebellion rampage. And I started to go, God, what in the world is going on? What is with these people? What makes them the way that they are? And I started to see maybe there is something else that the Bible can teach us about this. And lo and behold, there are a couple of passages that I want to share with you from the New Testament, shedding light on these Old Testament stories. In Hebrews 3, 12 to 19, it says this, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you have a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As it has, been, as it has just been said, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. What is this rebellion? Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose body perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. The author of Hebrews was saying that they had this original conviction that God was their God, especially while they were still in slavery in Egypt. They turned to God, they cried out to God, God rescues them. They had this conviction that God loves them and is there for them. But the moment they went into the wilderness, it was like that original conviction evaporated. And isn't it like us, that when God has already purchased our lives and given us freedom and victory, but there are moments in our life where we lose sight that God truly is for us and not against us. And we start to rebel and we start to have difficulties believing and trusting that God really is there for us. Another passage, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1 to 6, says this, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud. The cloud, you can read in Exodus, it was the, the pillar of cloud that, that um, led the Israelites through the wilderness. That, um, they were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food, and drank the same spiritual drink. 
for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. You see the imagery that I was talking about? Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. So what is happening in Exodus all the way through Numbers is actually written as a warning to us today. And Paul, as well as the author of Hebrews, puts it this way, that they had hard, unbelieving hearts. And Paul in particular says that you can do all the Christian things. You can go to church. You can sing those songs. You can be filled with all the good things that God wants to fill you with. But if you continue to have an, a hard heart set on evil, then you're not going to actually enter the fullness of God's promise. And that is a warning that I think that we need to consider and to think about. What does it mean to have a heart set on evil? What does it mean to have a sinful heart? What does it mean to have a hard heart? What does that mean? Because I think we need to realize what it is so that we are able to hold on to God. And I started to think about this. What does it mean to have this heart? What does this Exodus story tell us? And I started to see this picture. See, God took Israel out of Egypt, and He says, you're no longer going to be slaves, you're going to be my people. But as Israel goes along, as they travel through the wilderness, you can see that the way that they talk about things always seems to be tied back to Egypt. And I started to wonder, why is Egypt so dang beautiful to you? And then I realized that while Egypt was a place of slavery, Egypt was also a place of great wealth. While Egypt was a place where they experienced great oppression, there were other people in Egypt that experienced great blessing. And I started to realize that perhaps what was going on is that they wanted God to elevate them from slavery, from the oppressed, and promote them to being someone else but still in Egypt. That they wouldn't need to change anything, except for the fact that they're no longer oppressed and slaves. You see, how many of us have this understanding that, God, I want you to save me to change my status so that I will be more powerful, more wealthy where I am? And we have this issue because we think that what God's freedom looks like is promotion where I am in the old culture and in the old place. Basically, if I can put it this way, Israel didn't want to be slaves anymore. They wanted to be the slave masters. Israel didn't want to be the oppressed anymore. They wanted to be in the position of the oppressors. And they saw God's freedom and they saw God's provision through the lens of, look at what those Egyptians used to have. They weren't talking about the meat pots they used to have as slaves. They were talking about the meat pots that the Egyptians used to have. And so when they thought that God was leading them away from Egypt, they were saying, why are you taking us away from the land of plenty? into this place where there's nothing. 
when we have our hearts set on a different place and a culture to where God is leading us, we will constantly be wanting to go back there. And Egypt is a place that represents in the Bible slavery. In the book of Romans, it keeps talking about slavery to sin, and there's a picture of Israel in Egypt as slaves to sin. As long as you are either the slave driver or the slave, you are still in the slave nation. And what God is trying to do to us is to bring us freedom. But what we need to understand is for us to really walk in God's freedom, we need to disassociate and to stop ourselves from desiring freedom that looks like Egypt. So I want you to think about this. What does success look like to you? What does God's provision look like to you? What does it mean that God has bought you freedom? What does it mean that God has given you life and life abundantly? If you keep looking at what it used to be like or what, what it is like today in the world, what does the world tell us about freedom and success? And if we gauge whether God is giving us those things, we will be like the Israelites. We will rebel against God because the promises of God only happens through the wilderness into a new place that doesn't look anything like Egypt. And Mount Sinai, when we see the laws that God was giving to the Israelites to set up the new nation that they were meant to be, it will look nothing like Egypt. You, you were not allowed in God's new nation to be a slave driver. You were not meant to be a full-on slave owner. I mean, there were certain concessions, but understand that if you are a slave in Egypt, it was the most humane slavery you would ever have because every seventh year, you would be completely let go, let free. Oh, you've done your duty. What do you mean you've done your duty? If you're a slave, you're meant to belong to that family, to that person, not in God's house. You belong to God first and foremost. That's how it was supposed to be. And I think Israel, as they were trekking along, saying, maybe no. Now that I'm free from my oppressors, I want to be the oppressor. I want to be above and not below. One of the greatest things that God brings us freedom from is a freedom from our understanding of success, our understanding of His provision, our understanding of freedom. The more I look at what the world says is freedom, for women in particular, they say, I'm free to expose as much flesh as I want to the world. That is slavery. You have just, be, you just put your image on the internet for all kinds of men to look at and to lust over. You have just become a slave. You become a slave to all the likes that you can get on Instagram. You become a slave to whatever everyone else thinks. But in God's economy... Freedom isn't anything like that. Freedom isn't getting that promotion. It might, but that's not what it's all about. Freedom is not about more dollars in my bank account. Freedom is not about how I accumulate. Freedom is not about any of those things. Freedom is about the fact that I don't even know if any of us can truly understand God's freedom, because our frame of mind always includes Egypt. As long as we live in this world, our freedoms always seems to come back to how the world talks about it. 
And to follow God is not easy because we need to shut that little voice saying, is God really here? Is God really providing for you? Because if God loves you, you would have your food, you would have your water, you would have your clothing, you would have your promotion by now. I love what Dylan was sharing around the giving today. He was saying that when we start having this transactional approach to God, God, I'm giving to you, so when are you giving to me? It stops us from understanding and seeing that giving is a freedom. How crazy, giving is a freedom? What do you mean giving is a freedom? Like Bill Gates only started giving after he had built a multi-billion dollar empire and decided, oh man, this is not what life is about. I better give this all away. Maybe we need to take a book from Bill Gates' book and say, maybe getting more dollars in my bank is not going to give me a sense of freedom. I'm going to be tied to my work. I'm going to be tied to all of these. Maybe freedom is when we trust God. Maybe freedom is when we follow God's lead no matter what the past looks like. Maybe freedom is doing the things that God is saying to do even when it scares us. Maybe freedom looks like doing the things according to God's way because God is the only one who truly knows freedom. It's kind of interesting that God didn't use a slave to rescue the slaves. God used the one who was in the palace to rescue the slaves. Moses enjoyed the freedoms and the excesses of Egypt, but yet he still said, I need to follow where God is leading me because Egypt doesn't have anything on where God wants me to be. And when Christians understand that our freedom comes when we detach ourselves from Egypt, whatever Egypt is for us, God is leading us to something so much more. God is leading us to unimaginable freedom. But even in the midst of his leading, it's so easy to get my mind trapped. I'm back in Egypt. Oh, what about those people? They have all these comforts. God, why didn't you bless me like you blessed them? Maybe God's saying they ain't blessed. They're crumbling under the weight of whatever they have. I'm leading down you down a new path. You know, that's why discipleship at our church is so important. Because sometimes we get in our minds what success looks like, what life is meant to look like, what freedom is meant to look like, and we need someone else to say, snap out of it, that's absolute rubbish. Why are you chasing that? Why, why are you chasing that? Why aren't you seeing how God is being so good to you? I've needed that at times. I've needed my pastor to slap me around the face a few times and say, why do you think that that is what you needed to do or where you need to be? This is difficult. But this morning, if I can get the band up. Next week, I do want to explore a bit more about the promises of God and, and what, he, what He's leading us toward. But this morning, I want to land on this place of Do you trust that God wants to lead you to freedom? Do you trust that God has your best interest at heart? Are you in a place, and there's nothing wrong with it, but are you in a place where you're wondering whether God really cares for you? Whether God really is there for you? Because if you are, my hope is that you're not comparing it to what Egypt has, but saying, God, I'm scared. 
And the path to freedom is scary because the path to freedom includes a lot of stretching and growing and things that I'm not familiar with. I'm leaving Egypt. And so this morning, I want to I encourage you to examine and to have a look at your life. What are you pursuing? Are you actually freed from? Are you freed from all versions of success? Are you freed from your past? Are you freed from traumatic situations? The Israelites needed a lot of time to process that they were no longer slaves. There was a new identity that was being placed on them. And quite often, I would argue that they were thinking like slaves. They were thinking as though they had lack. They were thinking that they were small and insignificant when God was saying, I am your God, you are my people, and if I am for you, who can be against you? And they were still wrestling with the identity. Are you, are you free from your past? Are you free from how the world talks about success? Are you free from? Because you can never be freed to until you are freed from. That's what God has put on my heart this morning. And first and foremost, if I can get everyone just to close your eyes, bow your head. In this private moment, I want to speak to people who haven't actually said, God, I need you. Or maybe you've walked away from it. Maybe you've gone, I can make my life work by myself. Whatever it is, if you are here in this place, in this moment, and you realize, God, I need you. I need you to be my Savior. I need you to be my Lord. I need you to be my everything. Then please say this prayer with me. Dear Jesus, I invite you into my life. I know I'm a sinner. I know I've fallen short. I know I don't have the answers. And so I turn to you. Be my Lord and my Savior. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Lift Church or on Facebook at Lift Church Perth. That will give you all the up-to-date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.